This is Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimmering. Are you looking for a different way to think and talk about climate change so that you aren't feeling helpless or hopeless when listening to mainstream media's take with doom and gloom scenarios? It's true the science has spoken and the impacts are coming faster than originally predicted, but this is not the time to give up or become disengaged. At Environmental Voices Rising, we are shifting the narrative and bringing you stories from women environmental leaders who are working on solutions right now in their communities. These leaders are addressing the challenges of global warming with innovative and workable solutions, the opposite of the doomsayers. We also want to engage you, the audience, with inspirational stories and opportunities to find solutions in a community of like-minded people. At Environmental Voices Rising, we acknowledge the magnitude of the challenges, and although you may feel small, you are not powerless. Please join us, subscribe to the podcast and newsletter at evoicesrising.com. We are partnering with Tree Sisters, and for each new subscriber, we make a donation on your behalf to planting trees and reforesting the earth. Thank you for joining us today. Today, I am delighted to welcome Karen Crespo Trevino to Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic. Karen is an environmental activist. She is working on environmental justice community organizing projects that develop leadership for youth-led groups to address environmental issues in their communities. In 2020, she co-founded Leaders for Earth, an acronym for environmental activism, Reclaiming Their Health. Karen has organized multiple environmental justice programs in the Salinas Valley, a major agricultural area in Central California. Leaders for Earth works with student leaders and assists them in becoming community activists. Being able to educate on farmworker rights, environmental health impacts from exposure to pesticides, and water contamination. She is currently a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz in environmental studies. Karen is Quechua Bolivian by ancestry and grew up in California on the unceded lands of the first peoples of the San Francisco Peninsula known as Ramatush Ohlone. We will be talking about ancestral remembrance, embracing traditional cultural practices, and how they can help us live in right relationship with the land. We will also be speaking with references to land recognition. Land recognition is a way to acknowledge that wherever we are, wherever we are living or working, we are on lands that are the ancestral homelands of First Peoples. So I will begin by welcoming listeners to this podcast, which is being recorded from Lishan Ohlone land. Karen, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. I know that acknowledging and carrying ancestral knowledge is an important factor in your story and in your activism. So can you start by telling us about your ancestors, your parents, your grandparents, and what are some of the specific ancestral remembrances that have shaped you and that you desire to carry forward? Yeah, thank you so much for the question. I guess I can go ahead and start off here which is kind of giving some context about my parents. 
So my father was born in the small pueblo or town of Ununi, which is a small town in the department of Oruro in Bolivia. My mother was born in the pueblo or town of Yayawa, which is another uh, small town in Potosi. And both of these towns for context are mining communities. To give a little bit of a historical background, during the Spanish colonial era, the Spanish extracted natural resources such as silver, tin, zinc, lead, while also enforcing or even enslaving native peoples and or laborers such as the Mitas in the region by forcing them to work in the mines, also known as Cerro Rico, which translates to the rich mountain or the rich hill. And this mountain single-handedly ended up being one of the most profitable mining operations for the Spanish empire, while also extracting natural resources from these Andean regions to the point where its people were forced to confront massive levels of poverty, lack of clean water, air, etc. So my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and my other ancestors were essentially subjected to work in these mines in order to support their livelihoods at the time and really provide like the basic needs for my, my ancestors and my family. And from what my mom has told me, my grandparents on my mother's side worked really hard in these mines without much other option, but they knew that working in these mines at the same time would increase their chances of dying at a younger age because there's so much air pollution and dust. They're working in the mines. There's increased asthma rates and overall early deaths associated with these conditions. So for this reason, my grandfather, my mom's side, like worked as much as he could. And my grandmother would sell clothes on the outside of the mines. And eventually it helped them basically like quit the job and like move to a different part of Bolivia, also known as Cochabamba. So this would basically give more context about like how my, both of my parents ended up migrating to Cochabamba and they were both like very blessed to be able to buy homes over there through their parents, but they would still struggle socioeconomically. But on the brighter side, like they also didn't have to watch like you know, like my grandfather, like work in the mines and confront these like massive like environmental health issues or my grandmother desperately sell clothes. That's the historical context where, you know, a lot of different um, populations who have that context with the mining communities. But now at this point, the majority of my family lives in Cochabamba and my parents originally migrated there when they were kids before coming to the U.S. So they were pushed to migrate to a more urban city for socioeconomic purposes and especially due to the health risks associated with environmental health hazards working in the mines, it was slightly better being Wachibamba, but they also still had to grow up in poverty where they didn't have large access to qualities of food or clean water or air, and a lot of them didn't get past high school for their education. But again, <laughs> repeating the cycle of migration, my parents ended up having to migrate up here at the Northern context. So my parents decided to be the first in our whole family to migrate. And we were very blessed because my dad's a musician. So he was able to essentially like spread his love for his culture and his music and his language through playing with the band that's called Goyana. And they were native artists who played music of the Andes. So he has a huge passion for music. Ever since he was a kid, he sang and played native instruments such as the samboya and charango. And he would bring this as an opportunity to, to come to the US, but also at the same time, send money back home for his family. There's an opportunity here where he was very blessed to come 
but he also used it as a way to financially support my family back home. So from these stories, what in particular do you treasure from your ancestral knowledge that you want to pass on? I guess it's important to give context here as well about just the overall cycles of intergenerational trauma. Because growing up here in the U.S. context, I, for a long time, didn't exactly know who I was. I didn't really understand my identity. I just knew that my family was from Cochabamba and my, my dad, you know, loves music. So one thing that I definitely treasure and want to bring forward for those who will come after me is my father's music. He has a lot of different videos and songs on, like, YouTube, for example. So I definitely want to keep those and treasure those. And he has, like, CDs at his house that I want to preserve and make sure that they're passed down. And at some point, it would also be amazing if I could learn how to play, you know, instruments like the charango, which is like a small mini guitar, or the zampoya, which are like the pan flutes that you might hear from the Andes. So I really want to, at some point, learn. But regardless, like, I definitely want to think about music and just overall, like, being able to pick up, like, language, especially my Quechua language, knowing that my great-grandparents spoke it, my grandparents spoke it, but then it was slowly like lost down because of in the Bolivian context, there is a lot of racism and discrimination. And if you speak Quechua, oftentimes you are discriminated against, but now it's it's changing like really rapidly. So I also want to kind of, in a sense, like question that in my own family and like think about how can I really return to my language? And I'm slowly but surely doing that by picking up certain phrases, you know, picking up like different people on social media that are also a part of the Andean diaspora that have been like really teaching me and like really good to connect with. So these are the things that I'm really trying to value is like language and music and also my food ways. I think you might have probably read that I'm a huge advocate and I'm very passionate about preserving ancestral food ways. That's like the source of like my whole work and like what I'm studying here for my graduate degree. So I also really want to think about how can I return and how can I practice relationships reciprocity with the land and the seeds and the food sources and really like return back. If this means like going back to my homelands and practicing these cycles reciprocity through land caretaking and seed stewardship and food stewardship, then that would be like my dream come true. So these are things that I'm really passionate about. That was really beautiful. Could you expand a little bit more on this concept of reciprocity and land caretaking? Because it seems to me a core tenant of this ancestral knowledge. Yeah. So for me, reciprocity is a very important word in many cases, like when you're having human to human relationships and also when you're having a relationship to the land itself and different resources. But essentially, I think about it in the sense of I want to ensure that there's a sense of respect, mutual understandings and empathy on both sides when we're thinking about our relationships to humans, the environment and such. I also think about it in the sense of in my bio and like when I speak at anything, I refer to the fact that I was born on and grew up on Ramatashaloni land, for example, and that I'm currently located on the Yupi tribe in the Waswas Nation. And this isn't just a land acknowledgement. It's also to note the fact that I've always been on indigenous lands, despite not being able to grow up in my own homelands, you know? So I acknowledge that 
I grew up on the ancestral homelands that are not mine. These, they're of the Ramatesh Maloney, and I want to pay respect and acknowledge my positionality and honor the fact that there's going to be a lifelong journey of reciprocity with them too. So I think about this also in a sense of like, just overall paying respect, knowing positionality and what it means to exist on someone else's territory and really think about how can you build relationships with the land itself and its people. And it's of course, like everyone is so busy throughout the day. There's so many things going on in the world and there's a lot of healing to do like within ourselves intergenerationally. But I think this process of really questioning our mindsets and almost like forgiving yourself, like forgiving the ways in which that colonial systems have harmed our mindsets and begin that process of self-decolonization can really allow us to think about ways forward towards empathy and reciprocity with our resources and other people who have been stewarding these lands for generations. I would like to add my support to these important points that you've made about building relationships and having mutual understanding. I can see how these relationships are an important part of your activism. Could you tell us how you became an activist? How did it evolve? Yeah, so there is a story to, I guess, how I became an activist and how I became, I got into this work. And essentially, it's a personal story, but I'm also really happy to share. So essentially, I just gave context about, you know, my ancestors and my family, the fact that my father immigrated here to the U.S. and settled essentially down on Ramatashaloni land. And essentially, this is going to be a story about my childhood and just overall like my upbringing. And just knowing that I was able to witness my father play music. I was able to, you know, perform it in certain like dances. I like carnivals and like, you know, dancing certain practices like pinkus and caporales, which is really fun. But at the same time, I received a lot of comments, I guess, like growing up that I wasn't American or that I wasn't Hispanic enough. So I didn't really like understand like what any of that meant per se, nor did I really ever identify with this idea of Latinidad or like being American. I just basically knew that my parents were from Cochabamba, you know? So essentially like I went into a spiral of a lot of self-hate and a lot of like identity crisis essentially because I didn't really know myself. There was a lot of times throughout my life where I saw my family struggling financially. And at some point when I was around like 13, 14 years old, my father's health did decline a lot because he was really overly stressed and there was a lot of anxiety involved. And he eventually had like a, a developing tumor in his throat that prevented him from singing on like when he was, you know, like trying to make livelihoods for our family. So because of that, I had to make a lot of shifts with what I was doing. So I started working multiple jobs while in high school. So I was working like in customer service and like the restaurant industry, tutoring. So all these different jobs while also going to high school and also sustaining like extracurricular activities. Because I'm not sure, maybe you are aware, but like there's a lot of pressure for high school students to just basically do everything in the whole world just to get into higher education. <laughs> so it was a lot of external pressures. So at some point I had the really amazing opportunity to actually go back to my home country. 
because I would go back like every five years or so. But this, at this point, I was in my sophomore year of my undergraduate career, and I was able to return to Bolivia through a program called SIT. And I was able to be there for about seven months. So when I returned, this was probably the time where I truly, truly got to understand like, okay, I knew that I was from this place, but I also don't really understand like what part of like my identity or my ancestry is relevant to my existence in like the US, you know? So when I actually did go back, I really got to meet different people, learn from so many different amazing mentors and teachers and just begin the process of reconnection. And when I came back, returned to the US to continue my undergraduate career, I essentially just wanted to make sense of my identity, of my experiences, of my adversities. And I wanted to begin activism because I didn't want to essentially live in, in sorrow. I didn't want to live in sadness anymore. I wanted to actually make a change. And I knew that it wasn't just me who was confronting these issues. I knew that there were many different populations and I guess globally, but I want to start small and they work locally around me. And I wanted to work with different nonprofits who were focused on environmental justice and then eventually led to me creating Leaders for Earth. So yeah, that's kind of the backstory. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your personal story and choosing not to live in sorrow. And more importantly, wanted to make sense of who you are and your relationship to your heritage. Tell us some more about the film that you made when you went back to your homelands. Yeah. So to give context about that, I made that film project when I was studying in my homelands with SIT. We had the option of essentially writing a paper or going through a creative format. And I really wanted to try a creative format because I had been writing a lot of papers already and I just wanted to test out the waters with a creative field and have you know, one-on-one conversations with different activists and native intellectuals and just connect more further with how people are understanding the context of sustainable nutrition and food sovereignty and ancestral food ways and their own perspectives. So yeah, the project is called Environmental Conservation Through Health Perspectives from Cochabamba and Santa Cruz. And the project was really focused on this, like how do you highlight representatives from two major urban cities and really have them think about processes of food justice and food sovereignty while also centering native methods of food production. Essentially, what was really beautiful from that project was that a lot of the Participants talked about this idea of promoting economic accessibility of healthy crops that were grown through using ecologically sound farming methods or agroecology and overall fulfilling producer to consumer relationships where there's this built, again, relationship of reciprocity involved with the producer and the consumer. So that was really interesting. And in Spanish, they call it picuaria, like this process of like relationship between the producer and consumers. And this film was also really fascinating in the sense of like, there is laws and there is policies in the Bolivian context that is focused on decolonization and food sovereignty, which is really radical and beautiful and wonderful. Yet there is this, I guess, overarching pressure from global food systems where, you know, agrochemicals and agrochemical companies and markets have power and that they are still existing and that there's still the pressure for 
small scale farmers to scale up their processes of growing food and overall produce more quantities of food using agrochemicals and essentially influence them to leave their process of food sovereignty or their process of growing on the small scale. At the time when I was making that film, I had the wonderful opportunity to go to um, La Chiquitania, which is in the Bolivian Amazon. And I went to a community called Santarita. When I was there, I was really mindful about the relationship that I wanted to develop because I was only going to be there for a few days. So I didn't exactly want to go in and just demand for an interview because I don't know the person, you know, I want to build a relationship and like really understand like their perspectives on certain things. So it's kind of what I did. I basically asked them like, what are some things that they would like for me to record? And a lot of them wanted like family photos actually, because a lot of people didn't have like photos of like their family, like on their doors, like on their homes. So I took photos of their families and I also got to record the women making different artesanias, which is like textiles and like scarves and bags. And I also got to record them making traditional dishes such as masako de yuca, which is a really, really yummy dish made out of yuca that's like mashed with like the woman's hands. And it's also eaten with a little bit of like some like, like butter and stuff like that. So it's really good. So I was able to incorporate this into the film through their permission, essentially to show these examples of traditional food ways and also artesanias that should be preserved for generations to come. And yeah, I also do want to highlight the fact that I had this really good conversation with one of my participants in this film project, this research project, and her name is uh, Dr. Vivian Camacho. And she talked about the importance of again, this relationship reciprocity between cultivating and harvesting food sources. So she talked about this process of refining a food source and how refining means the process of eliminating a food or stripping a food's nutritional value to the point where it's no longer healthy for you. And she compared this to this process of how the colonizers would completely strip the identities and cultures and language and music traditions from native communities in a process to refine them summarily with foods. And when we had this conversation, I was almost really emotional because I felt like someone had finally like said exactly like what I've been thinking about in such a beautiful way that just made complete sense with like, you know, food systems and how this process of refining or processing a food source is really detrimental and it has really like caused so much damage. So yeah, that was kind of overall some reflections from that project and connecting to identity back home. I've been talking with Karen Crespo Trivino, an environmental activist, and we've been talking about ancestral knowledge and indigenous foodways. And I'd like to switch over to talking about Leaders for Earth, the group she co-founded with student leaders to address some of the environmental and health issues in their community, which happens to be Salinas Valley in California. So a couple of years ago, I know the issue of water contamination in the Salinas Valley made national news. Here, there are farm workers living, working, and growing food for the nation and yet their own personal water was undrinkable. 
contaminated mostly from agricultural nitrogen runoff and then transported through water pipes that were so old and additionally contaminated with lead and bacteria. Undrinkable water seems to be an issue that many students at the local high school were interested in addressing, and they wanted to organize and bring awareness of this issue to adults. They were also addressing pesticide use. Tell us about the work that Leaders for Earth is doing right now. Yeah, so Leaders for Earth, to give more context about this project in particular, so before this project began, I was working with a nonprofit and I made the decision to leave the nonprofit due to numerous other reasons. But essentially, I was already working with the students from Salinas Valley, from specifically from Gonzalez High School. And I had already built that relationship with a lot of them where they were participating in, you know, these programs, these academies focused on environmental justice with this nonprofit. And essentially, I wanted to make the formal announcement that I was going to be leaving the nonprofit and moving on. But I also was getting really emotional. I didn't want to leave them. I just had to leave due to the conditions of the working environment at the nonprofit. And when I made the announcement, the youth basically asked if we could start another group, like which is how Leaders for Earth began. We didn't have a name at this point. We were just a working group. For a while, we were called like the Salinas Valley Youth Sustainability Working Group, and that was our name, which is a huge, very long name, which also isn't catchy at all. <laughs> Slowly but surely, we kept meeting after I departed from the nonprofit, and Leaders for Earth really began because it was created by the youth that I was working with. I didn't go in there and just say like, oh, I'm starting a nonprofit. I'm going to start a working group or whatever. It was because the youth themselves asked for it, and I responded with you know, doing what I can to continue these programs. So yeah, it was founded in fall of 2020 by these high school students, which I like to refer to them as like my co-founders, you know? <laughs> so we focus on leadership development through social and environmental justice, educational programs and organizing opportunities. And we specifically work with these youth from the Sinus Valley because, you know, I'm aware that the Sinus Valley is one of the most largely agriculturally productive regions in the world where so many of the crops are exported globally, you know, crops like lettuce and grapes and strawberries, so many crops that are just exported globally. But at the same time, there's immense, you know, labor violences and just overall like terrible working conditions for farm workers that are on the front line. And for a lot of the youth that I'm working with, they have a family member who is working in the large scale ag field. So this is why it's it was important for me to think about, you know, my own positionality here, not being specifically from this part of, you know, the Central Coast, but working with these students who already have those lived experiences where they're living on the front line of, you know, a pesticide drift and water contamination and illegal dumping and air pollution because a lot of Salinas Valley is also located near the Highway 101. So a lot of like traffic passes through the region. So I was really interested in, you know, working alongside them and co-creating these programs. And a lot of it is really guided by them. Like I'm a strong believer in the fact that the youth themselves are, they're change makers, they have agency from their experiences. And 
a lot of like their perspectives influence the direction of what you know the projects and the program will look like so i work with essentially a lot of students from ages like 13 to 18 but even after they graduate they stay they continue and return so a few of my students at this point are going to be turning 18 or 19 and there's one that we had that was like around 21 which is like close to my age i guess i'm also a youth <laughs> I saw on Leaders for Earth Facebook page, a lot of the students posted interviews about environmental activism and how they became aware of it and why it's important to them now. And I guess you're also doing some workshops, right? A lot of the students there were actually, a lot of them were in middle school, which is a really young age to start thinking about these things. But also not surprising, just because the youth are super aware, they just get it. And also, I guess through just... A lot of people who are young, I guess myself included, just see the environmental and social injustice like right in their face. And a lot of them are influenced to act upon what they're witnessing and such. So I think that although like a lot of middle schoolers were there during winter break, like literally like days before Christmas, learning about food systems, environmental justice, I was very impressed and surprised, but also at the same time, not surprised, but in fact, very grateful that they're taking that opportunity and that chance to begin learning about how all of these topics influence them in their lives. So I'm curious, how are they using what they are learning? Do they get to speak to organizations and government and other leaders? Yeah, good question. So basically for our programs at the moment, as Leaders for Earth, they're solely fit focused on education, but we also want the youth to think about approaches towards participatory action research projects, which also stands for PAR. And basically the idea there is to influence the youth to think about a vision or manifest a project that would be beneficial to their community. And a lot of them have created fact sheets basically talking about like what they learned, if it's something like pesticide drift or the connection between being exposed to pesticides or water contamination to mental health illnesses and like what that connection is. That's what they have done so far. And a lot of them have created wonderful fact sheets. And very recently, last year at this point, we worked together to essentially organize a farmer's panel. And this farmer's panel essentially gave the youth the autonomy to guide interview questions, guide panel questions, kind of what we're doing right now, like questions for people that are working in the farming industries in Salinas Valley. And a lot of the panelists were actually organic farmers and kind of like asking questions about like, what are they seeing with their experiences with farming through organic ecologically sound methods and what are the challenges? All of it was basically like youth led, like the youth designed the questions. I gave them the autonomy to guide the facilitation like i didn't say anything during the whole panel besides like the presentation the very part beginning part of the events so that was one way that we collectively like influenced them to kind of get their voices out there and practice this, you know public speaking and getting in front of a crowd and you know really speaking to audiences audiences in both english and spanish another thing that we have done is speaking to the monterey county agricultural commissioner where we would invite them to our classes before the pandemic started because things were just easier when you know you can just have someone in person to ask them questions and we invited him along with california 
Environmental Protection Agency, Cal EPA's Pesticide Drift Representative, Martha Sanchez. And they came in to give a presentation about pesticide drift. And essentially, what I really want them to do when they came is take a lot of notes as to what they're saying and think about how it relates to your experiences and then ask questions. And they did that. And it was a really good learning opportunity for them to have conversations with people that have, I guess, like uh, governmental or political power, you know, like people that are regulating pesticides or people that are in charge of a lot of policies that happen on the ground with the act system. So these are some ways that I have like worked with them to get their voices out there and ask questions and really challenge their what they're learning and like what they're um, understanding with their own personal context. Yeah. So share with us, what is pesticide drift? People in the audience may know, or maybe they don't. Yeah. So pesticide drift, the idea of pesticides is to, it's when you're planting something in the ground is to kill the pest. So pesticide means that you're killing the pest. And a lot of basically growers and farmers um, have to use pesticides and spray them when they're growing crops to kill off the pests and essentially just ensure that things can grow overall like quicker, have it more fast. And the issue with the environment and health related issues is that when you're spraying pests, sometimes the through like different winds and like movements of wind itself, there could be like the airborne movement of the pests that may enter people's immune systems and it may enter and hit people's clothing and it may be brought home to you know when you're washing your clothes and the pests are just sticking onto your clothes and that can cause a lot of chronic and acute health illnesses when i say acute that means like it's a short-term health impact that you may be experiencing like itchiness or like your eyes may become like really red or you may like have like a headache but a chronic illness from that could be that you're experiencing really like long-term health effects like asthma, neurological like development issues, especially if you're continuously observing pesticide drift when you're a young kid. So it's kind of like what it is in like a nutshell, but yeah. Thank you. That's a lot. What do you envision for yourself once you have your PhD? So essentially after my PhD, I really want to be a scholar activist. Essentially, I mean, it makes sense, right? I'm an activist already. <laughs> Yeah, and I want to use the resources and training that I have through graduate studies to be able to continue to work with communities, but at this point have the resources to hear their overall desires and make make them heard, and then actually influence some sort of policy change or, you know, think about like speaking on political levels and like talking to like perhaps like governments or just overall like asking them what they need and maybe something small scale like establishing more programs and maybe something much larger and very exciting, such as if there's a community that may want to think about starting, you know, like an agroecological farm or like a garden, having the resources to pull funding for that. So I'm really interested in continuing to work with communities and seeing what their desires are and use the methodological training from a PhD and a theoretical training to have those resources to work alongside them and co-create understandings of informed activism and really think about, you know, what that may mean in the future. This also might mean that I might go back home eventually, especially as my parents do plan to retire in Cochabamba and Tiquipaya and that I may develop like relationships with people like farmers in Bolivia and that I might have that 
wonderful opportunity in the future to continue working for my homelands, which would be like wonderful. But I'm also, you know, at the very beginning stages of my PhD. So I also don't want to predict too much. So we'll see. Karen, thank you so much for all you've shared with us and the work you're doing. I really appreciate that you could take the time to be with us. I always like to ask my guests to share with us other women environmental leaders who inspire you. Yeah, so I have to say, I think that I'm very, very inspired by all the women who were part of the 2021 Women's Earth Alliance Accelerator Program. It was probably one of the first times in my life where I was in a space that was solely focused on grassroots female leaders from all different walks of life and ages and identities. And yet we had different areas of focus, yet everything was just so interconnected because we're all working towards the environment and protection of our lands. And essentially, I also want to talk about an activity that really made me think during that program. And that was where we were asked to write about our Sankofa. And it translates to, it is not taboo to fetch what is at risk of being left behind. So this really helped me think about who are the shoulders that I'm standing upon and like who has come before me. And when I was writing my response to these, to what is my Sankofa and like, what does it mean to like, whose shoulders am I standing upon? Of course, I thought of my ancestors, but I also wanted to recognize that I was thinking a lot about Bachamama or Mother Earth. And for a lot of different Native peoples across Latin America, we refer to Bachamama as like Mother Earth. It resembles like fertility and it's like a goddess of Earth. So I thought about how I feel very taken care of and protected by the Earth. And especially when I think about like the stars and the moon and the lands, the seeds, the food sources that I have been like very blessed to have been surrounded by. So I had a lot of like deep thoughts about like what it meant for me to always be surrounded by the sense of female energy and what it means to be able to walk along no matter where I am on native land that resembles a sense of female energy and femininity to me. So that's kind of what I wrote wrote about and talked about in my response to that. That was really beautiful and inspiring. Thank you again. I really appreciate all the work you've been doing and share with you your heartfelt connections with your ancestors and ancestral knowledge. Have a wonderful year with your family and your PhD work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bachi, Anyai. Have a good rest of your day. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram and Twitter at eVoicesRising and subscribe on our website, evoicesrising.com. Our guests have inspiring stories to tell, and we invite you to share this podcast and use Environmental Voices Rising as a resource for climate action and solutions. Stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time.